draw near to God. That's your responsibility. If God seems distant this morning, remember who moved. It wasn't the Lord. As you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. But unfortunately, so many of God's people, instead of strengthening their hearts, which James has taught in chapter 1 happens through the truth of the Bible, they're poisoning their hearts. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl is continuing his sermon on developing patience from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. We are seeing how having patience enhances our testimony to others. Let's join Pastor Carl as he continues his lesson from the book of James, chapter 5. You know, I counsel people often about worry, and I remind them, well, it doesn't really do any good to worry. Think about it. If there's something you can do about the problem, then do it. Do what you can do. But if there's nothing you can do about it, and it's out of your hands, then you just have to wait on the Lord. And that's the same kind of thought that he is underscoring here in this section of Scripture that there are things that we can do, and there are things that God can do, and the two are brought together in this divine human relationship. So again, he says, you too be patient. Well, that's wonderful. How do I make this real in my life? He gets very practical. Notice, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts. Or some of your English Bibles say, establish your hearts. It's a word that means you make it immovable. And he's already underscored how we can do that in chapter 1. If you were here when I gave a sermon on how to hear a sermon, and I see some of you are applying the truths this morning. But God wants our hearts to be immovable. He wants our hearts to be strengthened. By the way, this word is used of the Lord Jesus. We're in Luke 9, 51 with a determination to go to Jerusalem. The text says he resolutely or he steadfastly, the King James said, set his face to go to Jerusalem. He determined no matter what that he was going to go to Jerusalem. Well, James, likewise, is saying, I want you to strengthen your heart to determine to do something. Now, it's kind of interesting as you read the New Testament because sometimes the strengthening is something that a human does or we personally do, or sometimes it's something that God does. For instance, Paul uses this identical word to describe Timothy. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. That's what I'm trying to do this morning as a pastor. I'm trying to strengthen you with truth. On the other hand, Paul makes a prayer that this is something that God does. In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, a few verses later, he prays so that he, meaning God, that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness. 
So on the one hand, he has sent Timothy to strengthen or to establish them. On the other hand, he prayed for God to establish them. And again, here is this divine human responsibility. He's already underscored this truth earlier in the epistle. Remember, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God. That's your responsibility. If God seems distant this morning, remember who moved. It wasn't the Lord. As you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. But unfortunately, so many of God's people, instead of strengthening their hearts, which James has taught in chapter 1 happens through the truth of the Bible, they're poisoning their hearts. And they will go home tonight all across America, and they will feed their minds on filth. And it is everywhere in the culture in which we live. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. So it's not just the attitude, let go and let God kind of distortion. No, there's something that we need to do. We need to live like it totally depended on us, and we need to live like it totally depends on God. Without him, I can do nothing. With him, I'm able to do everything. And so why are some people not established in the faith? Because they haven't strengthened their hearts. Does it bother you sometimes that you see a Christian who comes to a fellowship like this? They seem to be faithful and maybe even serve somewhere, and then all of a sudden, three, four years go by, and some crisis comes into their life, and they just fall apart like a deck of cards. And you think, I I thought he or she was a mature Christian. No, they had knowledge, possibly, but they didn't really strengthen their heart with that knowledge. In fact, there are three key ingredients that God has given us to help us to establish or strengthen our hearts. You might want to jot these down and think about them this afternoon. Number one, there's the knowledge ingredients. Uh, There's the knowledge ingredients. There is the obedience ingredient. And then there's the perspective ingredient. First, there's the knowledge ingredient. And sadly... Some Christians never really mature in their faith for a lack of knowledge. They come on Sunday morning, they don't need a Bible. People catch me going out the door, they said, I didn't bring a Bible, but I see I needed one. Yes, you do, because I'm not here to run my mouth and share my opinion and entertain you. And that's what we're doing in our day. We have pastors who are like clowns who are entertaining the goats when they are to be feeding the sheep. My people, Hosea 4, 6 says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Daniel says the reverse is true. The people who know their God will display strength. God's people sometimes don't grow for the simple reason they are undernourished, which is why if I am to display my love for Christ, I am to spend time in this book, I pour over the text every week. Rarely does a week go by when I have less than 25 hours in the text before I come and open it to you. 
Now, that may disappoint some of you that I didn't go fishing with you or see you in the hospital as much as I would have liked to have been there, but that's not my principal responsibility. My principal responsibility, apart from praying and evangelizing, is feeding the sheep of God. And sadly, in many churches in America, the people come and there's either nothing in the feeding trough or there's very little, not enough to really mature on. And by the way, the trough is open on Wednesday nights if you're interested too. (laughs) I've taught a lot of courses on Wednesday night like Bibliology, Christology, Soteriology, Ecclesiology, Eschatology, all kinds of courses in great depth on issues I might not be able to address on a Sunday morning. In addition to the knowledge factor, there's the obedience factor. And so 1 Corinthians 8, 1 reminds us that knowledge without obedience just puffs you up. It makes you proud over what you know. And so if you don't obey what you know, you just get puffed up potentially. But listen, when you begin to practice what God shows you, your life starts changing from the inside out. Jesus said, the one who obeys my commandments, he it is who loves me, and he it is who loves me, I will disclose myself to him. Think about that. God wants to disclose himself to you. And the obedient Christian who's walking in truth has a dynamic in their relationship with the Lord that is so rewarding, so fulfilling, that the things of the world begin to pass them by as meaningless. It's not by accident that Solomon will write in Proverbs 3.22 that God is intimate with the upright. God is not intimate with with everyone who hears the truth, but he is intimate with the believer who hears the truth and begins to apply it. So in addition to the knowledge factor and the obedience factor, there's a third factor that he underscores for us here in our passage, and it is the perspective factor. Look again in verse 8. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Again, the second mention of the return of Christ in this context. He's already said in verse 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And now for a second time, he reminds us, for. You see that word for? It's a causal in the Greek. It means because. In fact, two major English translations rendered that way. They say, strengthen your heart because. The Lord's coming is near. When you read the New Testament, you are immediately struck with the reality that the New Testament writers believed in the imminent return of Jesus. Now, I know in our day there is gross ignorance on Bible prophecy. Though one-third of the Scripture is prophetic in nature, sadly, many pastors never preach a sermon on the return of Christ or in Bible prophecy. And you have to skip over huge portions of Scripture. And yet, so you mention the rapture and people look at you like cross-eyed, like what, what does that mean? And they have no idea. And occasionally someone will challenge me and they'll say, well, I heard the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, neither is the word Trinity. 
And actually, the word rapture is in the Bible. It's in the Latin Vulgate translation that was used almost exclusively for a thousand years. And so the five solas behind me on the stained glass, all in Latin, reflective of an age when that was the only translation of the Bible available to God's saints. But you cannot teach the Bible in the whole council of Scripture. Now, some people want me to speak on Bible prophecy every week. I can. I have to talk about raising children and healthy marriages and using your spiritual gifts. I have to preach the whole council of Scripture. And this is one of the benefits of preaching through a whole book of the Bible, because when you do it, repeatedly the return of Christ is going to come up. And so we shall not all sleep. Paul will say, we shall be caught up, harpazo, raptere in Latin, and so our word rapture. So again, in your minds, here's a chart that might be helpful on the returns of Christ. And the rapture, he comes for his church, for his saints. When at the second coming, he comes back with his saints. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the trumpet of God, the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first. We are alive and remain. We'll be caught up. But he's going to bring back with him, Paul says, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So he comes for his saints. He comes with his saints. Look, if I drop dead in this pulpit this morning, I'll be more alive than I've ever been. Because the person inside this human shell by which you've related to me with is home with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so I will come back with Jesus. The dead in Christ will come out of the grave first. Yes, I will have my body buried if I have that option. Now, if somebody burns me to death, I won't have that option. But if I can have it buried, I'm going to have it buried. Now, it's not a problem if you cremate, and if you want to have your body cremated, I'll still do your funeral, so you don't have to ask me. But if you want to ask the biblical way in which to honor the body, you bury it, because that's the example that God gave. And so these last three funerals I've done in the last three weeks, there was a body present, and there was a whole lot more punch to those funerals, because there was a body present. If you just got a little picture, a little urn, it doesn't ring home the enormity of death. And at your funeral, for many of you, there will be family members and loved ones who don't know the Lord, and they will, if the pastor is Christ-centered, have an opportunity to hear the gospel. And so the dead in Christ will come out of the grave. Those of us who are alive will meet each other in the air. Yes, we'll recognize each other, just like Moses and Elijah were recognizable, and like Samuel was when he came up out of Sheol. At the rapture, he takes us to heaven. At the second coming, he comes back to the earth. His feet are planted on the Mount of Olives. He splits it in two. And prophecy after prophecy that has never been literally fulfilled is going to be fulfilled at that time. 
The rapture is a non-prophetic event. Nothing ever since Pentecost, when the last days began, nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled for Christ to come for his church. And so the imminent return of Christ. However, the second coming is a prophetically driven event. For instance, the gospel of the kingdom must go out to the whole world and then the end will come. When's that going to happen? During the tribulation. <laughs> They're going to pull off what we haven't done in 2,000 years. Through 144,000 Jewish evangelists, through two witnesses in the Temple Mount, through an angel, every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to hear the gospel. The whole world will be evangelized, and those who had never heard the gospel before in clarity and power will have an opportunity to repent. Those like those within the sound of my voice who've heard it before, it will be too late for you. And so the second coming is a prophecy-driven event. And as I've underscored, that's the amazement of our day. We are seeing prophecy fulfilled, which reminds you that the rapture is that much closer. Now, what do you do? Some people say, well, you know, here's, here's how it works, Pastor. Jesus is just coming back. He's going to take us to heaven, and that's the end of it. There's no tribulation period. There's no antichrist. In fact, some say Nero was the Antichrist. The tribulation period was the sufferings in the first century. And they spiritualized the text. There's no reign of Messiah on the earth, though it's repeated hundreds of times in the Old Testament prophets. It's underscored in the New Testament. We're just all going right up into heaven. What an abuse of Scripture. And it makes God less than faithful to his word. No, he is going to fulfill literally every single promise for the second coming, just as he did for the first coming. And so the Bible teaches what we would call a pre-tribulational rapture. Before the time of Jacob's trouble, the church is going to be removed. And number one, we have Old Testament precedents for that. Remember Enoch? All of a sudden, he was no longer there. He was gone, and the book of Jude quotes him and looks at him as a picture of the rapture of the church. He's gone, and what happens? After Enoch is gone, evil unfolds on the earth like it had never unfolded before, and it results in a cataclysmic event, the great flood, and then Noah walks with his family into a brand new world. The church is going to be gone, Evil like never before is going to be unleashed. Yes, it's getting worse and worse and worse because we're living in the last of the last days, but you haven't seen anything yet. You talk about evil. After the church is removed, evil is going to unfold in this world like it had never seen like the days of Noah. And then Jesus will come back at the end of that cataclysmic time of seven years of wrath and those who know the Lord will walk into a brand new world. So you have Old Testament precedents. Not only do you have new T Old Testament precedents, you have New Testament clarity. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, and on and on. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.19, I read it 5.9. God has not destined us for wrath. We read that this morning. And so there is passage after passage after passage, much like we're reading, that demands a pre-tribulational rapture. 
Again, you can just write it all off, say the next event Jesus comes back, we all go to heaven. But you cannot have a post-tribulational rapture and God literally fulfill prophecy. Remember, at the rapture, we go up and we get a resurrected body. Can you sin in your resurrection body? Of course not. Your salvation will be completed. Suppose we're here for the tribulation. Everyone, Old Testament church saints, everyone's resurrected. And then we come back and make a U-turn to reign with Christ in the earth. Who at the end of the thousand years, when Satan's been bound for a thousand years, who is he going to tempt against God's Messiah ruling in Jerusalem? There's no one to tempt if we all have a resurrection body. So out of prophetic necessity, passage after passage, reason after reason, it demands a pre-tribulational rapture. But if we go up, if tribulation saints meet the Lord during that seven-year period. Some will survive it. Jesus said if the days were not cut short, no one would survive. They'll enter into the, tri the millennial reign in their natural bodies. The earth will be rejuvenated. It's called the rejuvenation. The lion will lay down with the lamb and the wolf and so forth. Literal prophecies being fulfilled. The baby will play next to the cobra's nest, not be harmed. But they'll have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And at the end of the thousand years, some of their unregenerate children who did not respond in faith will be tempted by the evil one. So you have Old Testament precedence, you have New Testament clarity, but in addition you have prophetic necessity. Absolute prophetic necessity, it cannot happen any other way. And so Paul says, you brethren are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. Anyone who tells you they know the day or the hour, and my, what a mockery has happened, though most of the day and hour predictions have been done by cults and lost people. But when they do this, because we're all grouped together, they really bring great shame on the truth of Scripture. No one knows the day or the hour, but the Scripture says you can know the season. But they believed in an imminent return, that Jesus could come back at any moment. You cannot believe in the imminent return of Christ if there's prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the second coming. But if the churches could be raptured today and there's no prophecy, then you can believe in imminent, and the prophecies only relate to the second half of the parousia. So Paul can say the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Or Peter can write in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Or John can say, children, it's the last hour, and just you've, you've heard that Antichrist is coming. Even so, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it's the last hour. And so Paul says we ought to be looking for the blessed hope, not for the tribulation, not for the Antichrist. We ought to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So why does James exhort us to strengthen our hearts? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand, and that has huge ramifications. He's reminding them the trouble that you're going through is only temporary. That this earth is not our home. 
that God is going to come back and he's going to fix it. And so we pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus. But a second motivation is it should lead you to a godly lifestyle. Right after Peter underscores the prophetic schedule all the way through the end of the millennial reign of the Messiah where God creates a new heaven and a new earth, he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? Or John, when he mentions the return of Christ, he says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. In other words, when you get fixed in your mind that Jesus can come at any moment, it should be a motivation to godly living. And so throughout the New Testament, there is always an application of how you should live when the second coming or the rapture of the church is mentioned. And that's what he's doing here in verse 9. He says, do not complain, brethren, against one another. Because the Lord is at hand, do not complain brethren against one another. Hey, that's powerful. In other words, you don't say, Lord, well, why does this happen to me? Woe is me in the third degree. I mean, life is just miserable. Don't complain, and don't complain against one another. And the word here for complain is the word groaning, and it is often used in the New Testament in outside of the Bible in Koine Greek of an inner feeling that is not expressed. And so you're going through heartache and you get all these inner feelings. And you know what the tendency is to do? Is to go home and to, and to take it out and to scorch those who are closest to you. You go home, you yell at the dog, you hiss at the cat, you yell at your wife and kids, and they didn't do anything. It's just because you were mistreated. And he's saying, don't do it. We're called to strengthen our hearts. We are to be patient. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. This is the flip side of the first point he made in verses 7 and 8. Don't worry about the persecution you're going through because you can have a sense of comfort that the Lord is coming back and he's going to fix it. But now he's giving the flip side of the Lord's return that when he comes back, we're going to be accountable. Now, the unbeliever stands at the great white throne judgment. And so the scripture repeatedly says that men, lost people, will be judged according to their deeds. Why? Because their deeds will show that they're lost, that they've never been born again. But two, God will mete out his justice according to their works. Hell, in a general way, is terrible, awful for anyone who goes. But in the perfect justice of God, it will not be the same. We, too, will have a judgment, but not the great white throne judgment. And so Paul, uh, John says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is speaking, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So on the one hand, there is no judgment for the believer for sin, but there is a judgment for service. 
And Jesus underscored that truth, and Paul does in a passage like 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's the judgment of the just, and God is going to evaluate your works, be they good or bad. Contextually, good works are those that are done in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. Bad works are those that are done when you're out of fellowship with God. And a mark of carnality, among other things, is complaining, it's grumbling. And when we have perspective and we are exercising biblical patience, then we won't be complain heads. Now, look, whatever you do for the Lord will never be lost. He looks at every deed you've done, every act of service you've completed. Please join us tomorrow as we continue our series on Developing Patience. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 013. Please remember, you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures.